In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 21. 21 from the Gospel of St. Luke. Uh, the chapter, actually, the outline of the chapter from verse 1 to 4, the widow's two mites, the two mites of the widow. Then verse 5 and 6, the Lord predicts the destruction of the temple. From verse 7 to 19, the signs of the times and the end of the age. From verse 20 to 24, the destruction of Jerusalem. From 25 to 28, the coming of the Son of Man. From 29 to 33, the parable of the fig tree. And from 34 to 38, the importance of watch. We'll start from verse 1. If you can put Luke 21. Verse 1. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, truly I say to you that this poor, poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. So there was a treasury within the temple complex where people could make donations for the support of the temple as well as the support of the poor. And most probably that the Lord was standing not far from the treasury box. So the Lord noticed a line of rich people who put in a lot of money. Perhaps they were making some kind of display to call attention to their gifts. But also, he took a particular notice of a widow above all the rest. The poor and the widow are regarded by the Lord in general, the poor, the poor people. And the widows are regarded by the Lord and he cares for them. This widow is poor, meaning she did not have any kind of support. At that time, women did not work and did not make money, so they rely on their husbands. So if the husband dies, 
and she has no children to support her, then she will be very poor, miserably poor. And the emphasis that she was poor in order to reinforce the value of her action and her donation. So she came and put two mites. The mite was the smallest current coin. So two of these little pieces were the smallest legal offering which could be dropped into the treasury. <coughs> A widow like this maybe might have kept one coin for herself and no one would blame her if she did so. Actually, if she did so, this means she gave 50% of all her money. 50% of all her money. But instead, she gave with astonishing gen generosity. She gave all what she had, the two mites. And at that time, the only uh, money they used was the coinage. So when the rich people threw in their contribution in the box, the sound of the coins made obvious sound. But when this poor widow put the two small coins, made two small sounds as they fell in the box. That's why they knew she dropped two small coins, two mites. In previous chapters, the Lord rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees for their love of money, their insincerity, and their fruitlessness. But here the Lord pointed out to this poor widow who does not place material wealth before her duty to God. So what a contrast between this poor widow who paid all what she had and the scribes and the Pharisees that the Lord described them that they devour the houses of the widows. They devour the houses of the widows. St. Ambrose says, one coin out of little is better than a treasure out of much. One coin out of little is better than treasure out of much. And it is not considered how much is given, but how much remains behind. Again, it's not considered how much you give. For example, if I have millions of dollars and I give hundreds of thousands, but still the remain with me is big. But if the remain is zero, 
after I give two coins, which all what I have, then we can see why the Lord said that this widow actually paid more all of them. Also, another observation, the Lord did not say she put in more than any one of them. No. He said she put in more than all of them collectively. So, if we calculated all of them, what they paid in that day, and what this woman paid, she paid more. Why? Because they were rich, but she was poor. They have a lot after they gave, but she did not have anything after she gave. So the Lord sees us when we give. And he don't pay attention to the amount, but he pays attention to the heart. He notice how much we give, but he is far more interested in the faith and motive and heart in giving than simply the amount. So the value of the gift is determined by what it costs the giver. That's why the Lord said the gift of this widow is so valuable. There is a nice story in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 24. When David wanted to offer a sacrifice to God. So one of the rich people offered to David to give him the sacrifice and everything he needed. But David refused. And he said he cannot give God that which cost him nothing. He cannot give to God that which cost him nothing. So this widow challenges the mindset that many nowadays have. I will give when I have more. She did not have any, but she gave. The widow had almost nothing, yet was a giver. So this widow had nothing, but she as considered by God as a generous giver. And I want to pay uh, to, to bring to your attention a very important point. That God does not need our money. If God needed our money, then how much we give would be more important than our heart in giving. For example, when the governments need our money, they collect taxes from us, regardless your heart is for giving these taxes or not. They just care about the money, about the amount of money. But God doesn't need our money. That's why it is our privilege to give to him. And we need to give to him because it is good for us, not because it is good for him. We will be more blessed when we give him. Also, the two 
number two refers to love. So the two coins represent the gift of love that God will accept joyfully from us. Love for God and love for others. Verse 5. Then, as he spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So, who spoke about the temple? We learn from Matthew, Mark, that the apostles are the ones who asked the Lord about the temple. So, when the Lord sat on Mount of Olives opposite to the temple, and uh, they saw the temple with its beauty, so they asked him about the temple. This temple was expanded and improved by Herod. Herod started the rebuilding work at 19 before Christ, 19 BC, and was only completed at 63 AD. And we know that the destruction of the temple happened at 70. So the work of the temple was finished almost seven or eight years before the destruction. It was finished only seven years before it was destroyed. And how many years it took to uh, remodel it? 80 years from 19 BC to 63, so 80 uh, uh, years, and almost. And Yusuf, that's the same temple that Solomon built? Yes, but the, this uh, temple was uh, destroyed, yeah. then Zerubbabel uh, rebuilt it, uh, so this the temple that the Lord entered into it, and it was yeah, it has need some uh, remodeling, and this was done during the time of King Herod. So this temple was not only big, but it was so beautiful. Historian Josephus said that the temple was covered on outside with gold plates. And this was so brilliant that when the sun shone on them, it was uh, blinding to look at with the reflection on all this gold. Also, where there was no gold, there were blocks of marble of such pure white that from a distance, travelers thought there was snow on the Temple Mount because of this marble. And the primary source for the historical event of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is the historian Josephus. And this book is available 
actually on the internet, who was an eyewitness to the siege and capture of Jerusalem by the Roman legions on 70 AD. And the Lord told them, not one stone will remain on another stone. And the Lord's prediction was fulfilled in the most literal manner. After they burned the temple and burned Jerusalem, all the gold melted. Then when uh, things start to cool down, the, the gold actually precipitated on the stones. So in order to get the gold, they start actually to break the stones in order to take the gold from it. So literally, when the Lord said, not one stone shall be left upon another, these words were fulfilled literally. Uh, um, Titus, the general who destroyed uh, Jerusalem, in the beginning, it was his strong wish to spare the temple. But he couldn't. And Josephus, the historian, writing upon the complete demolition of the city and the temple, said that with the exception of Herod's three great towers and part of the western wall, the whole city was thoroughly leveled that no one visiting it would believe that it had ever been inhabited. So the city was completely leveled to the ground, Why? completely, because the Jews rebelled against the Romans, so they want to discipline them. So here, actually, the Lord was speaking this maybe at year 30 or 32, something like this. And the temple was destroyed at the age of 70. So God gave the Jewish people who resisted Jesus 40 years to come to the new covenant as new generation in Christ. Exactly like how he gave Israel 40 years in the wilderness before entering the promised land and fully embrace the Sinai covenant. So the judgment finally came in 70 AD when the Roman army completely destroyed Jerusalem and the temple by fire. And the temple was never rebuilt until today. Do you remember when the Lord said in Matthew 23, 38, your house is left to you desolate? This house is the temple. And the Lord told about the temple, your house is left to you desolate. So verse 7, so they, the disciples, the apostles, asked him saying, teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? So who asked this question? According to St. Mark, Gospel chapter 13, 
Peter, James, John, and Andrew. So these four apostles asked the Lord this question. When and what sign? The Lord did not respond to the question when. They asked him, when will these things be? He did not answer this question. But he answered the second question, what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? It is harder to distinguish between the signs that the Lord gave of the destruction of Jerusalem and the day of judgment. So the Lord in his answer, he spoke about two things. The second coming, when he comes to judge the world and the destruction of Jerusalem. And it is difficult to distinguish between these signs and that signs. Matthew and Luke, in their Gospels, make it clear that the Lord spoke of both coming destruction of Jerusalem and the ultimate end of the age in his glorious return. So both Matthew and Luke make it clear that the Lord is speaking about two events, the end of the world and the end of the temple and destruction of Jerusalem. And some things that God in the destruction of Jerusalem intended to give an example of the ruin of the world at the last day. So what happens in Jerusalem will be like in itself a prophecy about what will happen to the whole world at the end of the days. So as these signs happened before the destruction of Jerusalem, almost the same signs will be seen before the great and terrible day of the Lord coming to judge the world. Verse 8, And he said, Take heed that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time has drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them. So the Lord warned the disciples that many would be deceived as they anticipated his return. And historian Josephus, when he described it, the Jewish rebel against Rome and the destruction of Jerusalem, he reported the appearances of many false prophets claiming to be the Messiah who actually led the people of Israel astray. So what the Lord said here applied both to the coming destruction of Jerusalem and also to the end of the ages, before his second coming, many false prophets will arise and will deceive many people. And they will speak in the name of Christ. Verse 9, 
But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified. For these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Josephus described the period which immediately followed the crucifixion as full of wars, crimes, violence, earthquakes. In the late 50s and into the 60s also, the Roman Empire was led by an evil emperor, Neron, and he was faced a number of rising in the regions. Also, there were, there were wars and commotions, unsettled conditions preceding the destruction of Jerusalem. The Romans were frequently at war with Jews, Samaritans, Syrians, and others during this period. And the Lord made it very clear that none of these things are specific signs of his immediate coming. So we should expect wars, famines, earthquakes were become more frequent and more intense before his return. But none of them is a sure sign or a specific sign that he is coming immediately. Matthew, in his Gospel, chapter 24, verse 8, he described the wars, famines, commotions, earthquakes, he described them as the beginning of the sorrow. Beginning of the sorrow. Uh, before the destruction of Jerusalem, there were notable earthquakes and famines, as the one mentioned in Acts, Chapter 11, verse 28. The Lord also said, verse 10, then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, war, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes in various places, <coughs> and famines, and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. Fearful sights and great signs from heaven. So, Josephus also, in his preface to the Jewish war, lists many signs from heaven. One of which he said, a star hung over the city like a sword and a comet continued a whole year. So, here we see how humanity will be divided against itself. As the Lord said, one nation will rise against another, one kingdom against another. So not only this, but earth and heaven will declare their wrath on people. Earth will cry out with great earthquakes. The same happened on the day of the crucifixion of the Lord. 
and heaven will be we will see signs from heaven also and the Lord has informed us of these things ahead of time so that the impact would be less severe and when this happens the believers would not lose their inner peace so as the Lord told us not to be terrified he, he in verse 9 he said uh, do not be terrified do not be terrified and also the Lord's declaration of these words may have been for our sake in order not to doubt. Verse 12 But before all these things they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons you will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. So, beside the wars and earthquakes and famines and the signs from heaven, there will be suffering from persecution. And as the Lord said, this precede the wars and famines. Only St. Luke spoke about this persecution. And the church was persecuted before the destruction of Jerusalem. Between the ascension of the Lord and the revolt of Israel against the Roman Empire in year 66, uh, which actually reached its climax in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the Christian suffered many persecution. And you can read about this persecution in the book of Acts. Peter and John were arrested, imprisoned, tried by the Sanhedrin. St. Stephen and St. James were martyred. St. Paul and other disciples were beaten. St. Paul was arrested by the Romans, imprisoned, and spoke the gospel before two Romans governors, Felix and Festus. A Jewish king, uh, yeah, he, he spoke uh, or testified before a Jewish king, Herod Antipas, and before two Jewish princes, uh, Druskella and, and Bernique, before being taken as a prisoner to Rome. Because the Lord said in verse 13, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. So we, we saw, for example, in the life of St. Paul, how these sufferings and persecutions turned it into occasion for a testimony. He testified before Felix and Festus, two Romans governors, King uh, Antipas, a Jewish king, and two Jewish princes, Drusilla and Bernique. Also, uh, God assured us that during this time, he will inspire us But what we say. As he said in verse 14, Therefore, 
settle it in your hearts, not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. You don't need to prepare a draft of defense, for I will give you <coughs> a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. And when you study the book of Acts, you will see how all the apostles uh, and the disciples of Christ and the believers spoke eloquently before their enemies. And everything that the early Christians suffered that was recorded in the book of Acts was prophesied by the Lord Jesus Christ in this chapter. Luke chapter 21, especially verse 12. The disciples of the Lord were persecuted and also will be persecuted. Until now, the Christians are persecuted. But we should not regard any season of such suffering, no matter how severe it is, as a specific sign of the end of the world. But this will be an occasion for testimony. Uh, and you study the book of Acts and the church history, you can see how Christian took opportunity to preach about Christ to those who arrested them before kings and rulers. Otherwise, how the message of, of Christ, of the gospel, reached these kings and rulers, many times it reached them during the time of persecution. So this persecution will be a means to strengthen and confirm us in the truth of the gospel. Also, it will be a proof and evidence of the certainty of the teaching of Christ because he prophesied that this will happen and indeed it happened. And the Lord told us not to try to think of words or what to say in replying to the kings and rulers. But the Holy Spirit at this time will inspire us. It is natural for any person to be fearful if he appears before these great officials and to think how to respond to their question. But the Lord promised us special grace, special help, in such circumstances. He promised that they will answer in the most prudent manner to any difficult or tricking question. We will be provided <coughs> with such knowledge of the gospel, with such gifts and abilities to preach and defend the gospel. And it will be easy for us to give a clear and distinct account of it and to prove every point in the gospel and also to defend all the objections. In the Old Testament, when Moses apologized to God to speak to Pharaoh, the Lord promised him that he will be with him and put the words in his mouth. As we read 
in Exodus chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. And in the book of Acts, we can see how God inspired his people to speak. For example, Stephen's speech in chapter 7 from Acts before the rulers and St. Paul's defense before Felix in chapter 25 and before King Agrippa in chapter 26. Then the Lord told us also something very important to know in verse 16. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. So Christians must expect to suffer not only from enemies outside the church, but also from traitors among the believers. And we should be ready to pay the price of following him. And in the church history, there is records of early Christian how people suffered from their own families, parents, mothers, uh, fathers, siblings. So, that's why his own believers would have very often to give up parents, friends for his sake. Like if until now, some people from other religions, when they convert to Christianity, they are hated and persecuted and killed by their own families, by parents, by brothers, sisters. And they have to give up, to give up even very, very close family members. And yes, they will put some of you to your death. This was literally true in case of several of those uh, were listening to him and until now. And he told us, you will be hated. Uh, when you read uh, in Acts chapter 28, verse 22, it's written, for concerning this sect, Christianity, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. So everywhere they spoke against the Christian. Everywhere you will be hated. And until now, actually, there is tolerance for any religion, for any belief system. But the only religion, the only faith that's not tolerated is Christianity. Until now. You will be hated by all. But the Lord, after all this uh, difficult uh, messages. He want to assure us with comforting word. So in verse 18, he told us, but not a hair of your head shall be lost. So not a single hair will fall down without the will of God, as we read in Matthew 10, 
10.29. Meaning no one can touch you. No one actually is able to make one single hair fall down if God did not allow it. Uh, Bishop Eusebius from 4th century, he recorded that Christian recognized the signs Jesus gave them. And also they were warned by revelations and visions. So the faithful left Jerusalem just before the Jewish revolt and traveled across the Jordan River to Berea, saving all the members of the Christian faith community. So all the Christians left Jerusalem before the destruction of Jerusalem, all of them. And indeed, there are not any records of Christian perishing during the Jewish revolt or Rome suppression of the revolution. With the destruction of Jerusalem, all the Christians left Jerusalem because of the warning of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then this part was concluded with a very important advice to us. He told us, by your patience, possess your souls. By your patience, possess your souls. Patience means perseverance here, by your perseverance. And the verb possess involves the idea of acquiring, acquire your soul. So this command is the same that Matthew wrote it in Matthew 24, 13 and Mark 13, 13. He who endures to the end shall be saved. So we need to endure. We need to persevere. We need to be patient, not to lose heart. God is on our side. Not a single hair will fall down without his permission. And in this way, we will acquire our soul. We will be saved. We will possess our soul. So by patiently bearing all afflictions, reproaches, indignities, persecutions, letting nothing to disturb us or to distress us, we will possess this peace, joy in our soul. The world cannot take our joy or our peace away from us. We endure trusting the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not one hair will fall down without permission from your father. So actually by verse 19, that is the end of chapter 21, 38 verses. So we'll stop here by verse 19. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.